0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, January 8th. Today, Trump signals de-escalation with Iran. Life inside the Senate in 2020, and outsourcing handwritten cards to robots.
1: If you're an Iranian, the past 24 to 36 hours has been quite crazy. Ashan Tharoor covers foreign affairs. First, you saw the scenes of this incredible spectacle of the funeral of Qasem Soleimani. At that event, very tragically, there was such a crush of people that a stampede led to dozens of deaths. Then in the evening, by Tuesday night, the Iranians mustered an actual military response to Qasem Soleimani's killing and launched this fusillade of of missiles at U.S. targets in Iraq. And then, not long after confirmation that these missiles were fired, we saw reports of a Ukrainian passenger jet that left Tehran, explode and crash, uh, killing everybody on board. And at the same time, we also got reports of two earthquakes striking the country, apparently in locations not very far from major nuclear facilities in Iran.
2: As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Good morning.
0: And then on Wednesday morning, you had President Trump, who was giving a press conference specifically on the missile attack and what it means for the U.S. now.
2: We suffered no casualties. All of our soldiers are safe. And only minimal damage was sustained at our military bases. Our great American forces are prepared for anything. Iran appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world.
0: Tell me about what he said at this press conference.
1: Well, he sort of telegraphed it uh, the night before with a tweet, of course, where he suggested all is well. And so we, we anticipated, some of us anticipated Trump feeling forced to, you know, respond in kind in some way. And yes, at his speech today, uh, in front of his generals and uh, top lieutenants in in his cabinet, he signaled pretty clearly that he is taking the off-ramp in this particular moment of crisis. He's not entertaining further reprisals against the Iranians. But at the same time, he threatened Iran with more sanctions.
2: The United States will immediately impose additional punishing economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. These powerful sanctions will remain until Iran changes its behavior.
1: He articulated once more his usual laundry list of complaints about the Iranian regime, but it did seem that in the space of a a day or so, what we were worrying could be a crisis that could trigger further and more scary uh, military action has somewhat been diffused.
0: And the way that President Trump talked about this made the case that this was basically a win for the United States, that there were no U.S. casualties in this attack, and that Iran appears to be standing down. But I'm not sure that that's the right framing of what happened, that it's just, that it's all over now, now that this attack happened, that that we can all go forward.
1: Right. The idea that Trump neatly has won this whole encounter with the Iranians uh, is only compelling if you if you've only been paying attention to the situation in the last week. If you if you think of it just as oh, on Friday in the early hours of Friday, the United States took out Qassem Soleimani, this hugely important figure for the Iranians, uh, and this 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 real bogeyman for the West and particularly the United States, at what seems to be minimal cost. There was a lot of you know noise and fury from the Iranians, but they seem to have responded now with a very symbolic act that specifically as Trump has pointed out, uh, didn't create any further U.S. casualties. So it seems in that sense very neatly done. And Trump as well, uh, in order to satisfy the part of his base that really doesn't want any entanglements further in the Middle East, it has indicated pretty clearly that he's taking the off-ramp.
0: But I think that when you look historically at Iran and the way that it does acts of retaliation, they seem to ascribe to the theory that revenge is the dish best served cold.
1: Absolutely. And and of course, you know, none of this situation right now precludes Iran turning to asymmetric warfare down the road.
0: Define what you mean when you say asymmetric warfare.
1: Well, what we've seen over the last year, just last year, we don't have to go that much further back. Uh, the Iranian regime, we believe, has been behind a whole series of attacks on shipping in the Persian Gulf, on Saudi oil facilities, on other targets in the region, launched either by their direct military assets or proxies that they have in the Middle East. And they do it in such a way that there's always plausible deniability, that they do it in such a way that they never take credit for it, so it's unclear what's going on, and and so that there's not necessarily always a chain of escalation that has to come out of it, and they, they, they kind of leave the ball in your court to decide what you want to do with their provocative acts. In this instance, they were very clear that, look, we're doing this, we're firing the missiles exactly at the same time that, that a few days earlier Qasem Soleimani was killed. They fired it at one twenty a.m. their time, which is when Soleimani was killed on Friday night, or Friday morning, that is. And it was very clear that this is, this is our idea of a tit-for-tat response. And, and so that, that was the distinction there. Now, going forward, though, there's no reason why they won't continue their various provocative acts. And the Trump administration has a whole series of, of strategic d- dilemmas facing them that Trump did not acknowledge at all in his speech today.
0: President Trump also spent some time during the this, this statement that he made talking about previous presidents and the, and the situation that he was dealt. He
2: should have been terminated long ago. By removing Soleimani, we have sent a powerful message to terrorists. If you value your own life, you will not threaten the lives of our people.
0: The, quote-unquote, termination of Soleimani was something that past presidents had, had failed to do and that he was the one who was able to do it. What Unpack some of that for me and, and what that meant to
1: you. This is Trump's perennial campaign politicking uh, via foreign policy, this is what he does constantly. He, his entire foreign policy agenda is yoked towards his own sense of political grievance and political mission that he thinks his domestic base gets activated by, and and this is yet again he's been talking about this constantly. He's denigrated the nuclear deal, uh, and then of course he's essentially gutted the nuclear deal, and uh, and one of the most important things he said on Wednesday was that it's time for the Europeans to give up the ghost of saving the nuclear deal.
2: The time has come for the United Kingdom, Germany, France, Russia, and China to recognize this reality. They must now break away from the remnants of the Iran deal, or JCPOA.
1: Yes, we know that the nuclear deal did nothing to curb Iran's behaviors elsewhere in the region, but no Non-Proliferation Act can be as exhaustive and sweeping as to you know, affect the entire political system of a country. This is the the nuclear deal, as it was understood and pursued um, in the final years of of the Obama administration, was supposed to put a lid on Iran's nuclear capability while setting a basis for further discussion and dialogue with the Iranians. None of that was worked on because Trump rewound the clock and scrapped the deal again. And now we're in a situation where Iran is closer to a nuclear weapon than it has been since 2015.
0: Well, so if we think about the difference between how President Trump is talking even from over the weekend when he was speaking in in very confrontational terms to today where it seemed that he was more in favor of de-escalation, what does that say about what his policy is on Iran and what we can expect from him moving forward? Well,
1: Trump's policy on Iran has always been one of profound strategic confusion. Uh, he has this campaign of maximum pressure that is still very much in place, that he still believes is is squeezing the Iranians the way he wants to squeeze them. But at the same time, we have no reason to believe the Iranians won't be pursuing the same, quote-unquote, destabilizing activities that they have in the past. Uh, they are now also more unshackled than they were uh, vis-a-vis their nuclear program and have the capacity to really alarm the international community if they wanted to uh, and and create the conditions that forced... The, the kind of very complicated, protracted period a period of diplomacy and pressure that led to the nuclear deal in the first place. So he's essentially set back the clock without gaining very much. We know the Iranian regime is suffering. We know there's a lot of unrest in the country, um, that the Iranian regime had to killed hundreds of protesters just a few months ago. But at the same time, Trump is not actually intent on regime change. At least he claims he isn't and has reached out his hand for um, you know, offering a new opening for diplomacy to the Iranians. It's very unlikely the Iranians will accept his hand, especially in an election year. And so we're kind of in this complicated space where Trump is claiming all these victories without with very little to show for it. We're in a period of tremendous volatility. And the people who are going to be caught in the middle are the Iraqis, ordinary Iranians who are feeling... The real pain of economic sanctions that the U.S. has put back on them, and U.S. troops that are also caught in the region. Ishan Tharoor covers foreign
0: affairs, and he's the author of the Post newsletter, Today's World View. It used to be that 85% of their time was on legislation, and now it's gone down to 25% of the time? Absolutely. That is Paul Kane.
3: I'm the senior congressional correspondent for The Washington Post, and uh, today or yesterday may have been my actual anniversary day.
0: Paul has been tracking how many votes the Senate takes each year and what percentage of those votes are actually about legislation, as opposed to confirmations for judges or jobs in the administration. And the fact that the Senate right now is at a record low of the last three decades, that's because of Majority Leader Mitch McConnell.
3: Senate leaders, as the the longer they're in charge, the more power they basically get, the more they want to just control everything. And McConnell doesn't, you know, he talked a good game about when I'm in charge, when I get to be majority leader.
2: We need to return to regular order. We need to get committees working
3: again. We're going to have free flowing debate and committee chairmen are going to be powerful.
2: We need to open up, open up the legislative process in a way that allows more amendments from both sides.
3: And he did that for about a year. And now he has just taken this whole process and cranked it up on the most senatorial steroids possible, and he doesn't want to debate legislation. He doesn't want to have uh, any real uh, legislative debate. He'd rather control everything inside his office, and any legislation that moves and goes to the Senate floor has to be completely pre-approved, pre-packaged, wrapped up in a bow so that it can be handled
0: within a couple of
3: hours and a couple of votes.
0: So tell me more about what that looks like on the inside and what is it like for regular members of the Senate that it's become this kind of situation where McConnell has all the power and where there isn't actually that much for regular senators to do.
3: So take a guy like Mitt Romney or Josh Hawley, freshman senators from Utah and Missouri you know they spent an incredible amount of money time and energy in 2018 winning senate races to come here to the senate and their day today if they get a call from uh, some family member and say how did it go today what did you do and they're going to say well i walked over to the senate floor i voted on three positions i didn't know existed <laughs> Uh, Then we went to lunch. Then there was a a closed door lunch where Republicans got together. Democrats will have their own version of that lunch, except today it's just committee, top committee members. They'll fight back and forth about what they should do next. And then later in the afternoon, they're going to cast three more votes on positions that they did not know existed until this week. And then they'll go off for the day. Maybe they go off to a fundraiser. Maybe they go home and have dinner with their family.
0: That doesn't sound like a very, uh, like a like a day where you actually get a lot done.
3: Ah, uh, no, not in that traditional sense. There's a real atrophy that has really taken place to the Senate. Ted Kennedy was the ranking Democrat on the Senate Health Committee.
2: I welcome the fact that at the real start of this uh, debate on the Budget Act, uh, we have an amendment uh, that really reflects uh, the uh, best judgment of. Uh, Republicans, Democrats uh, alike, here in the uh, Senate, and is, uh, so
3: and he he had incredible power because he had so many relationships across the aisle with Republicans. He had an ability to get things done. Um, these were power brokers that made the place work and made it made it more. Uh, influential, more powerful, because it wasn't just up to the majority leader and the minority leader to decide everything. And and that's what's really been lost in the last couple of years.
0: And I think that's one thing that we've seen in particular during the this process of trying to decide when this impeachment trial will be, that there really is no there is no one who is bipartisan. There is no one who can step a foot out of line from what the rest of their party is saying. And so for senators that you've talked to, what is it like for them that there is no voice of of bipartisanship, that there is no ability to try to make deals on things or or come up with compromises on things because the majority leader has all the power?
3: There are people that want to... ...work in a bipartisan manner. They, there are plenty, probably 20 or 30 or more... ...who really would like things to function... ...but they don't know how to do it. They're, they're mostly newcomers. There's only a few left. Lamar Alexander of Tennessee... Uh, ...the Republican chairman of the Senate Health Committee.
2: We're here today to present to the Senate... ...the agreement we recommend. The bill has 22 sponsors half Democrat, half Republican.
3: He is an example of a guy who has really been a good deal maker, especially in his committee. He, he works with the, the Democrat ranking member Patty Murray very closely.
0: First, I want to really thank Chairman Alexander for his leadership in launching a bipartisan process as well as his dedication to seeing it through. And,
3: and they have done a lot of great work in the past five to six years together. But outside of them, it, it's a lot of people who've only been here for six or seven years who have only
0: experienced the really hyper-partisan Washington who, don't, who just don't know how to do it. But at least my understanding is that the reason why, or at least part of the reason why it doesn't happen anymore, is because people are worried about elections and that stepping out of line with Mitch McConnell is stepping out of line with President Trump. And stepping out of line with President Trump is a thing that loses you a potential reelection campaign. But I'm wondering what the flip side of that is. How are these senators going back home, especially the ones who are, who are up for reelection in 2020, what are they saying to their constituents when— you have this record from the last couple of years where the only things of, of meaning that they've worked on are confirmations and getting people into jobs that no one has ever even heard of.
3: It's a frustration. There are quite a few Republicans who think that this strategy has its flaws and that they don't Appreciate it. Like, look, there's you've got Susan Collins of Maine, Corey Gardner of Colorado, Martha McSally of Arizona, Tom Tillis of North Carolina. Um, those are four people who are up for re election in November. Um, they would love to have something more than just some judicial nominees confirmed as, as something to talk about when they go home. That's the reality. They don't necessarily think this is the right approach for how things are going. But at this stage, they also look around and they think, well, we've we've won three straight elections. Mitch seems to really know what he's doing, so they're going to trust him.
0: Paul Kane is a senior congressional correspondent for the Post. And now, one more thing about the robots that are writing thank you cards.
4: I send out a ton of cards, and my handwriting is actually very good. I scribble notes all day long, but when I want to write well, I can. But I know that I'm decidedly old school. My name is Ava Badurai, and I'm the retail reporter for The Washington Post. There are a growing number of people who don't want to handwrite things either because they don't think their handwriting is any good or they don't have the time to do it. And so they are turning to these new types of companies that are cropping up to handwrite cards on your behalf. So some of these companies actually pay people to write down your sentiments in their own handwriting. But many more are actually training robots to hold pens and write notes that seem to be handwritten. Many of them allow you to pick out the kind of font you want, you know, whether you want cursive or print the color that you want. Some of them allow you to add your signature or smiley faces or any sort of personal flourishes you might have. And at least one service called Handwritten with a Y in Phoenix will actually turn your handwriting into its own font for $1,000. The machines actually use real pens, so you see a imprint on the paper. You see, you know, smudges and ink blots, different areas of pressure on the note. And so to the naked eye, it looks very much like a handwritten note. The companies also go a step further by adding in inconsistent spacing and characters so it looks more real. And in many cases, they're doing whatever they can to make these robots seem more imprecise and more human. So the main reason people are doing this is convenience, of course. But there's also this sense that, you know, when we're receiving hundreds of text messages and emails and Twitter messages a day, it takes so much more to get noticed and they feel like they have to send a handwritten card if they want anybody to pay attention. Others said that their handwriting is just too messy or they don't have the time. And often they also pointed out that it's cheaper to use one of these services that charge about three to five dollars a card than it is to actually go to the store, buy a card, buy a stamp, and then take yourself to the post office to actually mail it. People who are sending these cards insist that there's no difference between sort of them having written it themselves or relying on a robot to do this for them. And in the end, these are still your own thoughts. They're your own sentiments. Oftentimes, you'll have emailed them or texted them to the company, but you're just going a step further by making it seem like you went and actually wrote this by hand. The people who are on the receiving end, however, tend to look at things a bit more differently. I spoke to one couple that received an anniversary card from their son. But when they opened the card, they didn't recognize their son's handwriting. It looked nothing like his handwriting. It was a robot. And they were kind of of two minds. On the one hand, they were happy that their son had remembered them. But as his 73-year-old father said, it wasn't exactly a personal touch.
0: Abba Bhattarai covers retail for The Washington Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. For those of you who heard yesterday's credits, there now exists a mashup of this song that you're hearing now and Ed Sheeran's Shape of You. Find it by joining the Post Reports Facebook group or following me on Twitter. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
5: Hi, I'm Lillian Cunningham, a journalist with The Washington Post and the creator of Presidential, a 44 episode podcast journey through American presidential history. If one of your resolutions this year is to become a more engaged citizen, to brush up on your understanding of the nation's politics, then I've got a suggestion. Take the Presidential Challenge in 2020. Each of the 44 podcast episodes of Presidential tells the story of how a former president climbed his way to the White House, what he did there, and what's different about the country today because of his time in office. If you start now and you listen to one episode on a different U.S. president per week, you'll make it through the entire history of the presidency by Election Day. The episodes feature interviews with famous presidential biographers.
2: When I was writing my biography of Clinton, I kept saying, well, you've studied his whole life. What is it? Do you like him or not? Is he good or bad?
5: And with award-winning journalists.
2: The day he resigned, he called all of his aides and friends and family to the West Wing of the White House just before he left on the helicopter.
5: You can find all 44 episodes of The Presidential Podcast at WashingtonPost.com presidential or on any of your other favorite podcast platforms.